Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and before reading this book, I would have looked forward to a visit to the ice cream factory. Across the table from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor, branch head at the Louis Riel Library, and being in Canada, I guess instead of being a nickel boy, I would be a, a loony or maybe a toony boy. <laughs> and across the table from me is... Hi, I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and I am boycotting Funtown. And across the table from me is our special guest. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lori from the St. James Library. And I have spent way too much time and energy lately trying to figure out why we drive on a parkway and park on a driveway. So if anyone knows, please do get in touch and put an end to my misery. <laughs> <laughs> a good book can carry me away from an ever-engined ordinary day. Yeah. So keep it down, leave me alone. Close the doors and turn off the phone. Cause all I ever And you, dear readers, we wouldn't do this without you. We love hearing your opinions about the books we're reading, so lay it out for us. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. If you hang around till the end of the episode, you can enjoy our special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book, but first, let's do a little check-in with the panel. And I guess we should start with introducing our guest, Lori. Hey, everyone. I am a longtime listener, first-time caller to this podcast. I'm working really hard right now to keep my fangirling under control because I am super <laughs> excited to be here to be able to join in with such an amazing group of people. I have a confession to make. I have never done a podcast before. I listened to quite a number of them, so I am a little nervous. And second confession, never have I ever joined a book club. So this type of experience is very new to me. I work a lot with youth services, with children, with families, kids and teens. So I read a lot of picture books, a lot of books for young readers and young adults. So this is a great time for me to flex my mental muscles with some adult books. Mm -hmm. well, and Lori, if I can say, it looks like your copy of the Nickel Boys has about 40 uh, sticky notes uh, <laughs> at different points. So it looks like you've really, you've really taken a deep dive. I have, I have tried. I yeah. have got big shoes here, so I'm trying to keep up with the rest of the team. <laughs> and to our listeners, that's one way to become a guest panelist is just to say that you really, really like the podcast. And, uh, <laughs> uh, next time, we'll uh, it's a change. We'll have someone on that actively hates the podcast, maybe. That would be kind of a different thing how are you guys doing i'm all right you know i got a haircut again <laughs> another haircut, another haircut. You wow. know, I, I was excited when my last haircut i mentioned it on the podcast it was my first one in an actual professional setting in over two years went mm -hmm. to the same person uh i got it was probably the same haircut it looks very similar. Yeah. <laughs> but what does Marla Solid think of this one? Yeah, she, you know, uh, she said, yeah, 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 you know, she kind of, I think she's just happy that she doesn't have to do them now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she, she kind of was like, oh, she kind of just nodded. And yeah. I, I took that as, you know, uh, <laughs> you, know you know, a tacit endorsement. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah, I have nothing this month. Mm. Yeah, sorry. Gee, neither yeah. do I. Okay. I guess we're going to jump right in then <laughs> with the, about the author section. Yeah, let's do it. 
Okay, so Arch Colson Chip Whitehead was born November 6th, 1969 in New York City and grew up with relative privilege on the Upper East Side. He went by Chip as a kid before deciding the name was too preppy and switched to Colson at 21. He was the third of four children of successful entrepreneur parents, and he went to private school. Uh, Whitehead's dad was a bit of a drinker and had a temper. To hide from his dad's moods, Colson and his brother retreated into comics, books, music, and TV. Uh, he liked the authors Rod Sterling, Ursula K. Le Guin, Stan Lee, and Stephen King. He played a lot of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, he listened to post-punk and new wave and loved Sonic Youth and Prince. Whitehead graduated from Harvard and started working at the Village Voice, where he wrote reviews. During this time, he wrote his first novel and got an agent. Uh, this first novel was rejected more than 20 times. Uh, his second attempt at a novel was The Intuitionist, which was published in 1999 and concerned intrigue in the Department of Elevator Inspectors. This was followed by the historical novel John Henry Days in 2001. His first nonfiction book, The Colossus of New York, was published in 2003 and is a series of essays about the city. In 2006, he published Apex Hides the Hurt. 2009 was the memoir-ish Sag Harbor. 2011, Zone One, a post-apocalyptic zombie book. The Noble Hustle was also published in 2011. Sorry, did I say 2001 for Zone One? It was 2011. Um, so The Noble Hustle was also published in 2011 and is about the World Series of Poker. Of his publishing schedule, he says, I usually switch up between projects. The Noble Hustle was a book of humor, and before that, the zombie novel, and before that, Sag Harbor. So I generally am trying to have the next book be an antidote to the other before. I'm so sick of that world when I'm done with it. As he says of one of his favorite directors, Stanley Kubrick, he did The Shining, he did Clockwork Orange, he did Dr. Strangelove, and they're all very different. He picks a genre and a story that appeals to him, and he figures out how to do it. He was always switching it up, you know? If you do it once, then why do it again? The Underground Railroad was published in 2016. Uh, this brought Whitehead a new level of attention. It won the National Book Award and Pulitzer, was selected for Oprah's Book Club, and made Obama's reading list. It was also turned into a limited series, which ran on Amazon Prime. The Nickel Boys, published in 2019, also won the Pulitzer, making Whitehead the first novelist to win Pulitzers for consecutive books. Both the Underground Railroad and the Nickel Boys deal with institutional racism, and as per his publishing schedule, were not meant to be published back-to-back. -back. He had originally planned to write Harlem Shuffle after the Underground Railroad, but after Trump got elected, he really wrestled with a white supremacist being elected president and felt the need to address that. Harlem Shuffle is his latest, which was published last year in 2021, and it is a crime novel. He has, of course, received many awards and has taught in many universities. He lives in New York City with his wife, who is a literary agent. In writing this bio, I got the impression of Whitehead as a, as a really decent, humble guy with a sense of humor. His website notes that it is pretty nutty that he won the Pulitzer. Regarding teaching at many universities, the bio says apparently he can't keep a job. Um, <laughs> he, yeah, he once turned down an opportunity to have coffee with Toni Morrison as he felt unworthy. And I just wanted to end with this quote from the New York Times, which I think sort of summarizes his whole essence. So it says, for all his ironic swagger, more than 20 years after publishing his debut, he still sometimes feels like a novice. It doesn't get easier or harder, he said of writing. It's just always kind of terrible. <laughs> Good bio. Yeah. So this is my summary of The Nickel Boys. Alwood Curtis is a good kid. He studies hard at school and is dependable and trustworthy at his part-time job at a tobacco store. 
He lives with his grandmother ever since his parents up and left him when he was six. As a black teenager growing up in Tallahassee, Florida in the early 60s, he is tuned into the racial tensions and divisions in America. And after his grandma buys him a record of Martin Luther King's speeches, he gets involved in civil rights protests. Encouraged by one of his teachers, Elwood applies and is accepted into a special program where he can attend college classes while still in high school. On what should have been his first day of college classes, he is unjustly targeted by a white police officer and charged with car theft. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Alwood is convicted and sentenced to attend Nickel Reformatory School for a year. Nickel is an all-boys reform school that is segregated by race. After Alwood arrives at the school, he is dismayed to see that the class offerings are virtually non-existent. The students are forced to spend most of their time performing unpaid labor that generates profit for the school and the state. Elwood also soon learns that the staff often beat students, which is illegal. A utility shed out back called the White House is where these beatings mostly take place in the middle of the night. The students call it the ice cream factory because when you come out of there, you're covered in bruises of every color. Elwood befriends another black student there, Turner, who has been through Nickel before and is as cynical and streetwise as Elwood is studious and idealistic. Elwood tries to shorten his time at Nickel by being docile, subservient, and playing by the rules. But the staff seem to administer punishments almost at random. Elwood finds out, or decides, that there were four ways out of Nickel. One, serve your time, or age out of the system. Two, court intervention. Three, die. Four, run. Elwood decides there was a fifth way out. Expose the school for all of its cruelty and injustice and burn the system to the ground. And from that point forward, Elwood watches and waits. Waits for his chance. How do you guys like it? First opinions? Well, uh, this was my second time reading it. First time was in some ways thanks to Toby, who uh, years ago we were interviewing for a new positions at the library. And in, in between the interviews, we were just, you know, chatting and whatnot. And she said, oh, I just read the new uh, Colson Whitehead, you know. And I was like, oh, okay. We just, you know, because we had just done uh, Underground Railroad on the podcast. So I picked it up. And yeah. And I think at that point, that's when I really become a, became a uh, Colson Whitehead fan. So yeah, in revisiting it this time to me, it's interesting. I, I, I think... Like, I hardly ever reread books now as an adult, even though, like, as a kid, you know, you would read the same book dozens of times, at least I would. But I feel like every time I've done a reread of a book, I've always benefited from it. Not to say that I didn't enjoy it the first time I did, but I just took my time with the language and I sort of knew the the twists that were coming and I was able to just fully, thoroughly immerse myself in it. So, yeah, I want to hear what everyone else has to think. See, I totally forgotten the twist mm. um and it it's crazy because i like it's such a huge part of it and even when you get to the twist it's so nonchalant you can really just like read past it and i read it and thought no that's that's not right i'm i'm reading this wrong it's it's turner who dies it's elwood who's okay which is obviously not the case but once you know about that twist there are clues in here like in the prologue there's some um, it says there's a man who went by the name of Elwood Curtis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to blow your mind here. Have you noticed the cover? Two boys, one shadow. 
Like oh, there's all these like what? yeah yeah like there's all these subtle subtle clues that if you're looking for them they're there. I guess I was too distracted by my signed first edition <laughs> sticker on my copy to notice the shadow. Everybody, yeah. yes, I picked this up at McNally Robinson when it came out, thinking that perhaps Colson Whitehead had visited Winnipeg, but then I read later that. His publisher sent him to a, a warehouse in Jersey where he signed 15,000 copies. So I think probably this is the one of those ones I have in my hand. But no, the one shadow. Amazing. Yeah, right? Yeah. 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 As soon as I finished the book, I went back to the beginning to yeah. see how he, they described it right at the start. And yeah, it was that subtle. And who calls himself Elwood Curtis. Yeah. And I thought, oh, very clever. So clever. Yeah. Yeah. There are some parts where, um, I mean, obviously... Elwood, as an adult, is reluctant to go back to, to Nickel for a variety of reasons. One of them is, of course, you know, because he's he's living this life and he says, you know, he doesn't want to press his luck or something, mm-hmm. which is kind of like another way of saying that he's gotten away with it so far, if you want to call it that. So. Yeah. Yeah, clearly I have to go back and reread this book because I missed all of those clues <laughs> running right through it the first time. I was really surprised when I just looked at the book physically. It's not a big book, and it's not a long book. And I was thinking, well, how can the author possibly cover such a huge topic and such a long span of time? And I was really impressed by how he was able to create such vivid scenes with so few words, mm-hmm. um, particularly like the scene for me in the White House where Elwood is beaten for the first time. That stayed with me. It just, it's a quick scene to read. There's not a lot of detail to it. But that scene, like I say, that still haunts me. I'm getting chills now just talking about it. Yeah, the doctor picking out the exactly. pieces of fabric. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Those little details are really what made it all the more horrific. It was that the doctor knew, okay, well, this has happened before. I've got the tools here. I'm just going to go ahead and do this again. And here's some aspirin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. And don't eat the food. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so for such a small book, I found it had a great deal of weight to it for me. I greatly enjoyed this book. I remember really enjoying Underground Railroad, like being impressed with the writing. And uh, it's just been solidified here again. Colson Whitehead is so good with words and phrases. And uh, I was impressed with the way he cut out parts that I would have thought would have been part of the story, like we went right from getting stopped by the cop to going to nickel. There wasn't anything about the trial. It's just kind of like, that's not relevant somehow. And, and it wasn't the, he leaves out stuff you don't actually need that you can fill in yourself. And then when he's using words, uh, I wrote down a couple of phrases just because of how amazing they were. Like when he was talking about reading Archimedes and Archimedes famous statement about, if you give me a lever large enough and a place to stand, I can move the world. And then Elwood reflects violence is the only lever big enough to move the world. In another chapter, when he was talking about Ishmael, he was described as Ishmael was a man of secret menace who stored up violence like a battery. And I thought, oh man, what a phrase! <laughs> it's it's mm-hmm. poetry, but it's it's uh, yeah, it just blew me away. And he had stuff like that peppered throughout the book. So uh, just on a on a prose level, um, I I just love what he writes, and I feel like I could probably read anything he writes just because of the mastery with words. But then the story itself too was so compelling. Uh, the character of Elwood, I fell in love with Elwood right away. <laughs> the naivety of the child who thinks that the world is should be just and that you can make it just. It reminds me of being a kid and thinking, you know, well, these are the rules and I'm going to follow them and everything is going to work out because I'm following the rules. And then the world punches you in the face repeatedly. And most of us kind of cave in, but Elwood is 
still trying every step of the way to uphold this vision of a just world and how to make it more just. And uh, how can you not love that, you know? Yeah, like the system was rigged against him from the beginning, even when he was hanging out in the kitchen of the uh, Richmond Hotel and he was winning the dishwashing races. <laughs> yes. Uh, and he won that set of encyclopedias, you know, and, uh, you know, every everything that happened to him, the fix was in kind of thing. I think it's important to note, too, that another reason why Colson Whitehead wrote this book before he wrote Arlem Shuffle is that he saw on on Twitter reports of an actual school in Florida called the Dozier School for Boys that he based what the Nickel Academy on this school that had been open for over 100 years and finally was closed in 2011. And uh, the survivors of that school call themselves the White House Boys. And they get together every year and they they remember. So that's that was sort of the basis of his of his research for this. And it's really interesting how so many things like even the little details, like the fibers getting removed from the boys legs, those he took from actual reports of this Dozier school and even things like the White House. That was the name of the actual shed where they would beat the kids in the Dozier school. So he said that was too good of a little detail for him not to use in the novel. And there's even one other little kind of interesting part. If you remember adult Elwood, it was like the night before July 4th, and he was going to be going out with his girlfriend. And he was watching TV, and on on the TV, uh, it was the movie The Defiant Ones, which kind of ties in perfectly, you know, two people on the run and that kind of thing. And he actually went back to old TV guides to see what was actually on the TV on July 3rd, 1970, <laughs> whatever. And that was actually popped up. So he's like, oh, this is great. Like, so it, it, I found that very interesting too that uh like you said laurie it's a huge topic covering over 100 years but the fact that he can go in and pinpoint and tell these two kids stories is representative of the bigger story like the fact that you can go so specific in the narrative and you don't need all the all of the sort of the story just to get it's so much more at least for me it, it gets to me so much more than just sort of reading news reports on abuses like this to actually get to know these characters and live in their heads and and see what they've gone through. Yeah, absolutely. I felt that a lot of things, I read some articles as well on the Dozier School and some of the, as Trevor said, some of the words that uh, Colson Whitehead uses and the phrases were lifted straight from the people that were in that situation. And I really felt that he did such a great job of, of using that voice. One of the things that I did too, because I, I fell in love with Elwood as well, as I went and I listened to some of the Martin Luther King speeches that mm -hmm. he was listening to with the record that he got from his grandmother. And I grew up with records. I remember that pop and scratch and <laughs> your favorite song would get a little bit worn in the groove. And uh, just hearing the speech patterns and the cadences and things like that, it really struck me. That to me became the voice of Elwood in my head. Just that very measured speech, very thoughtful inflection and clearly weight to the words. And that really helped to bring Elwood even, I felt even closer to Elwood. His life experiences are so far outside of my own that that really brought the character to life for me. Yeah, I found a couple of segments from that album on YouTube and we'll link them in the show notes if you haven't heard them before. I hadn't. And, you know, every time you listen to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speak, it's easy to understand why people followed him and why he was uh, able to lead such a large and significant movement that changed so many things. Because he could, 
it's such a hard situation and he's not advocating the easiest way to go about things. He's advocating something that's very challenging on a personal level. Like Elwood struggled with the whole time. How do I show love when there is so much violence and hate shown to me? But Dr. King just exemplified it. He projected it. He he made you want to be that noble person. And you can see that in Elwood's struggle throughout the book to, to live up to that. And that's, yeah. It's one thing for us to to hear those speeches and kind of nod our heads in the in the abstract. But in Elwood's case, he had to put those ideas to work in a very visceral way. He he was you know Dr. King was asking him to love his his captors and love his oppressors and love the people that beat him and, and put him down. Love and, and that to see it play out in this way. I mean, he was he was a teenager, you know, yeah. and led a fairly sheltered life up to that point and did the right things, it seemed to me. Like, he had that grandma that looked out for him and he was trustworthy at the tobacco store and all the, like, and then those moments of kind of hope where it was at Mr. Hill. I love that scene with, with his teacher where they, where the, where the kids got the old textbooks from the white school across the way in the first day because the, the, the kids from the white school know that their old textbooks are going to the black school. So they write all kinds of uh, horrible racist things in them for the kids to get in the fall. Up to that point, the kids just learned to live with them and ignore them throughout the year. But Mr. Hill handed out all these, you know, uh, Sharpies and said, I want you to mark them all out, go through the entire book. And, you know, we're going to start fresh. And, and to me, it kind of almost felt like a Dead Poet Society moment, like when uh, Robin Williams' character tells the kids to rip out the uh, the boring introduction to get right to the poetry. Like, it was one of those kind of wonderful moments in the early part of the book, one of those moments of light uh, in an otherwise really dark story. Elwood is, is lovely. Like, I understand everyone's fondness for him, and he's such an idealist, but, I mean, ultimately, he doesn't make it. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's the much more cynical Turner that, that ends up you know, making it through. And, and what is what does that tell us about that idealism and that positivity and that hope? Well, then there was a parallel there with Martin Luther King Jr. also didn't make it. He was assassinated. Both idealists and it's the maybe the more practical people who made it on. But Turner wanted to make his life like uh, in memory of Elwood. I mean, Clearly, he didn't go do the the types of things Elwood would have done because Elwood, I think, if he had made it out, would have been fired up and active and being an activist, trying to make changes. And Turner was just trying to survive. But yeah, that's an interesting parallel I noticed afterwards. Would Turner have been able to survive and thrive in the way that he did without Elwood? I was kind of questioning that to myself. Was that Turner's life was on really on a, a downhill kind of a skid, and some of the stories that he, he tells later of some of the other boys that were in the Nickel Academy with him going the road of drug abuse, uh, going the road of just leading lives of quiet desperation or dying in the woods drinking turpentine or something, would that have been Turner's fate had he not met Elwood? That's a good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. by taking on the the persona of Elwood, I mean, Turner was, was trying to live up to that, right? Yeah, I thought their relationship was great too in school. Like, uh, what I, I go into these books cold normally, uh, so I was basing what I expected out of the description. And uh, Turner was described as like cynical and and believed you had to be as cruel as the uh, outside world, but he he wasn't really cruel or or mean. You you just expected the worst and looked at ways to carve out a little bit for himself, like uh, that little space he had carved out in the one warehouse uh, just for a little privacy. 
he was very practical. I didn't find, although I did find it interesting that one time where he was mentally cataloging some of Elwood's weaknesses so that if they ever got into a real fight, he'd have something to hurt him with. <laughs> it reminded me of uh, Batman in the, like, Batman kept files on all the other superheroes, so if he had to fight them, he'd know how to beat them. <laughs> and there's Turner. He's storing it up. He's yeah. ready. He knows anybody might turn on him. He doesn't trust anybody particularly. But still, at the end, he took a big risk and did something he said he'd never do in order to try to get Elwood out. So he was cynical, but Elwood rubbed off on him a lot. I was just thinking back to that scene in the, in the hospital where Turner says, yeah, I just had, had to get me a, a vacation. And he ate, <laughs> ate the soap that yeah. would uh, upset his stomach and uh, he gave him a couple days in the infirmary. He like he had the system all figured out. And the, <laughs> the character I liked, the minor character was Desmond, or he was the guy that was so like, he seemed to have the the, the merits and the, the demerit system figured out to a T and how you would move from grub to pioneer and, and all those things. And uh <laughs> And just how like how like unfair and weird the system was. He he was describing like the, there was the different houses. Sounds almost like a demented version of Harry Potter. But there was like <laughs> Elwood and and Turner were in, were in Cleveland, and then there was this other house, Lincoln. And they were all depending on who the house father or whoever it was, the the rules would be enforced. Just there's no way you could sort of do things to guarantee merits or demerits. And, and <laughs> so he was like the example that made me laugh out loud was. When Desmond was saying that if you if you got caught jacking off in Lincoln, you get 200 demerits. But if you are jacking somebody else off, you just get 100 demerits. <laughs> and, and then uh, and, and then <laughs> I was like, what? And he's like, that's Lincoln for you. Like, it's just to say, like, you know, sometimes the world doesn't make sense. But yep. you, th these are the, this is how it is. And uh, and what about Jamie, that poor guy who was Mexican? Yes, yes. who kept getting yep. flipped between the houses. Yep. Yep. I, I was reading that and I was thinking about one of the things that's always confused me about census statistics in the United States was the way they deal with people of Latin heritage. They're in some places they're cataloged as black and other places they're cataloged as white in other places they can catalog be cataloged either way because we have to group people apparently and we don't know what to do with some people yeah that was jamie just nope he's too white for this group nope he's too dark for this group it's like oh <laughs> Yeah, it'd be very interesting. Like you could, that's the thing. I mean, you can say it's a good thing or a bad thing about Colson Whitehead, but in all of his books that I've read, he tends to find moments to to kind of preach. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but he has things he he thinks, and you can definitely know what he thinks on certain things because of how certain characters talk. And the whole Jamie thing to me was just sort of like an interesting commentary on on race as like a social construct, and mm -hmm. and uh, and it was done in such I thought humorous way too, like because the first day Jamie was in the white group, but then after all day out in the field, his tan got so dark that they moved him to the to the black side and then and then someone else found him there and moved him over and it, yeah it was uh, pretty yeah it pretty really highlighted the ridiculousness of the concept and the way it's applied mm -hmm. yeah i read an article or an interview with uh, colson whitehead who said that elwood and turner represented two different parts of his personality like and that jamie might almost reflect a third portion of his personality that elwood was the part of him that's still hopeful and believes that we can make a world a better place and then Turner is the more cynical one. Nope, this country is founded on genocide, murder, and slavery, and it'll always be that way. And it's interesting to see how many sides of Colson Whitehead, I think, would come out in this. I think he's the kind of guy that I would love to sit, be able to sit down and just have a cup of coffee or a meal with and actually just have a talk with him mm -hmm. 
person to person and trying to keep my fangirl side (laughs) under (laughs) under control. That would be very difficult. Yeah, that makes me think of in the Underground Railroad towards the end, they're on the the Valentine farm uh, and there's a debate happening between two characters. And one uh, side is very much the ideas of Martin Luther King talking about love and acceptance and then the other side is very much a Malcolm X. We have to be separate. We're superior. And the and the two arguments play off each other. And again, it's very interesting. Like it's a- almost like a contrived scene for Colson Whitehead to get these ideas across. But it works in the book. And it's kind of a similar idea, I thought, in here where he, he gets his ideas across through the characters. Yeah, that's that efficiency of language and storytelling that he has. Just very good at putting things in a position to really highlight the important concepts. Yeah, when I was researching Whitehead, it's interesting because he says that people are often approaching him and being like, come give a talk about racism or, you know, come to my school and we want to discuss race and racism and whatnot. And he says, no, this is not my thing. I'm a I'm a writer of fiction. But you can see how he does address that in his books. But he doesn't like or doesn't want to speak about it in a more sort of um, real world sense, I guess. It's an important part of the story, but also the story itself is so compelling. There's nothing sacrificed to get across the social points he makes. I knew he was a good writer from the previous book I read. But then in this one, I just found it kept my attention the whole way through. And there were some chapters in particular that were so tense and driving uh the first one that really hit me was like the boxing match uh and the whole saga of griff you know this nasty bully everyone hates but now he's representing us so you were cheering him on and now he's supposed to take a dive but now now he's not throwing the match what's going on and then he disappears and everyone knows that he's been taken out tortured and killed and it was so i don't know uh breathtaking i I I was tired after reading that chapter because it was a little stressful. And I thought, wow, that's the real highlight there. And then he just, he ramped it up again when they were doing the school inspection. Mm -hmm. And Elwood was fighting so hard to get up the nerve to hand over his letter. And the whole time you're like, oh, is he, is he, is he, oh, he didn't know he had to pull back. Oh, he's trying again. It's like, oh, and then Turner steps up and you're like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a, a gut-wrenching chapter it just he drives that up the story is so propulsive like it just kept kept me going that was one of those chapters i couldn't stop reading it part way through i had to keep going yeah the stakes are very high i I love the lead up to that scene where elwood tells turner what he's going to do he's going to write this Hmm. letter and he's are you crazy why are you doing that and he says well you told me you know no one's going to get you out but yourself you have to look after yourself and then and then Trina says no one ever listens to me well, <laughs> well, why, why do you have to start now you know like, he's like <laughs> yeah uh, yeah careful what you wish for right? yeah. Yeah. one phrase that kept running through my head as I was reading this is just um, the banality of evil is the concept that the greatest evil in the world is done by nobodies that there's so many people that Elwood encounters that are doing evil, even though they wouldn't necessarily define themselves as doing evil. They're just obeying their orders. The whole concept of racism and the system that puts Elwood into the Nickel Academy is just built and constructed and upheld by ordinary people, like just people that are obeying orders, Um, like the police officer who drove Elwood up and down the state like he was in the back of the car for, I think, 12 hours because that's what the order said, even though logically he should have been picked up in a different order. 
Mm-hmm. It was just really, to my mind, I kept stumbling across parallels to what happened in Nazi Germany and to a degree what happened here with residential schools is that the, a lot of evil was done by people just following orders, just doing what they were told, just like the doctor just pulling threads out, not thinking that this is a human being who should not have been abused in this way. My job is to pull the threads out and give them aspirin, and that's the end of it. It's hard not to read that first chapter and not think about the mass graves that have been found at residential schools recently. Um, mm. During my first reading of this book, that wasn't the case, but those graves were found within the last couple of years. And then you read this prologue, and that's exactly what's happening. They're unearthing a mass grave. And particularly as a contemporary Canadian reader, you know, you can try to distance yourself and think this is America, this is their um, history of institutional racism. But I mean, Canada has its own legacy of that. And um, yeah, it's just the the parallels between the mass graves that was found in this book and then what's happening today was really striking. Yeah. Yeah, Colson Whitehead, again, from an interview that I read, said that, uh, and a quote from the interview said, uh, talking to some folks in Canada, they talked about residential schools where there were Indigenous kids were taken from their families and put into schools to learn about white culture, and the same kind of abuse happened. And it seemed if the story hadn't been told, somebody need to tell it. So there was there is a connection, a real-world connection, for Colson Whitehead between residential schools and what he's written. And sadly, the, the commonality, like the banality of evil, is that it's, it is everywhere, and that it is done just by ordinary people, just following orders and... Yeah, I, I think one of the scenes that struck me in that way was uh, right at the like when Turner and uh, Elwood were running away, and one of the people chasing them was Harper, mm. who had, had worked with both of them, uh, seemed an okay guy. Like you know, yeah, he was taking advantage of a lot of things and whatever, but he, he was mostly okay. But he's the one who had the shotgun, and he's the one who shot Elwood, yeah. and he didn't miss and. Uh, <laughs> it was gut-wrenching. It was a real punch to the gut. Yeah. I, I don't know that I expected any better of that character, right? But still, it's uh, you, you worked with these guys for a long time, man. Yeah. <laughs> How could you do this? I mean, but, perhaps this is a bit of a, a rhetorical question, but do you think Elwood had to die? I no. Mean, yeah. You know, the thing that kills me about the whole story is that it was all set in motion because... Elwood asked those two kids to put the thing back that they had taken at the store. He did that. They jumped him later. They messed up his bike because he didn't have his bike. He had to hitch a ride. He hitched a ride with a guy who had stolen a car. The guy got pulled over, and he just got swept up in that. There's no way he could have known any of that stuff would happen. And it all started off with a simple stand-up-and-do-the-right-thing kind of moment. And then everything that follows just... Elwood couldn't act differently. He had to stand up. He had to be a righteous person and try to do the right thing. And it's just, it, it went down this path. And none of it had to happen. Those kids didn't have to jump him, you know. Um, he could have gotten a ride from someone who hadn't stolen a car. Like, oh, so many different threads. And, uh, and you're right. And his troubles at Nickel began with him trying to do the right thing of breaking up what he thought looked like was a fight. Yeah. Uh, these two older uh, students bullying this little one, uh, little kid, and he thought he was doing the right thing there, too. And that set off the next chain of horrible events for him. Yeah. When the world is that unjust, even if you're doing everything right, like you can't fault Elwood for 
anything that he wanted to do in the idealistic sense that we try to raise kids in, right? Like, you should do the right thing. You should be honest. You should help those who need help. He did all of those things that you want kids to do when they grow up to make a better world. And every one of them was like thrown back on him and became a source of punishment. There's nothing he could have done better. Yeah, to paraphrase Desmond, that's the world for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I felt that choice of Whitehead's to have Elwood's trouble start with sort of being arrested or charged with stealing a car or being in this car that was stolen. I thought that was a really interesting piece of social commentary because it's just such a black crime, you know, riding in a car like we just see in contemporary society and so many black American people in particular killed in routine traffic stops and things like that. That should have never, never happened in the first place. And I, I thought that was an interesting choice that Elwood's crime is, is riding in a car. Yeah. Could you say then that Elwood's path down was was influenced back by the store owner who refused to, who said, just, oh, just let the kids take what they want. You know, they're just going to take a few things and then let it go. Do you think if the store owner had stepped up and said something instead of Elwood that his path might have been different? If he'd had some support from somebody, his grandmother supported him and raised him, but her was very much like, keep, keep your head down, keep in line, things like that. Don't try and step outside your station. And if the store owner had said something instead of Elwood to those kids, where would his life have gone if he'd had another adult in his life give him some support? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough call. I mean, the store owner's rationale for why he didn't do it made sense, right, mm. from a business point of view and from a social point of view. Like, he was trying not to ostracize his clientele because he recognized that they would be back, their family would be back, and that it was essentially beneficial for all of them if he just let some things slide. I wouldn't blame the store owner specifically, but it's just kind of an illustration of how unjust the culture is that really like everyone is going along to get along and ignoring what they know is the way things should be, but should and are are two different things. I I think the, the problem for Elwood really was that he had the idea that the world could be just and he could help make it just. And his world at the time in particular was extremely unjust, Mm -hmm. Uh, extremely so. And you can argue it still is pretty much everywhere. Yeah. And his experience in the world, too, was very much influenced. It was small in some regards, like living with his grandmother and having the jobs that he did and things like that. And hearing Dr. King's words, he wouldn't have necessarily had the experience in the larger world that would have led him into a more Turner-esque view of the world. Yeah, I was thinking like Elwood's moral compass was so strongly affixed and based on, uh, well, his upbringing from his grandmother, but also that Dr. King record that uh, I think in the book it said that if these kids were disrespecting the store and disrespecting Mr. Marconi, they were disrespecting Elwood too. And then he had to do something about that when even the store and I was like, no, 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 just don't, don't. This is the way it works. Just let go, let go. But he was attuned to it because of his idealism and, and his sense of what right and wrong were. And he, he paid the price every time he stood up and did the right thing. But he kept standing up and doing the right thing. Remember, that I think some of the people said, like, yeah, Ellen, he just didn't have any sense because he, any sensible person would realize the system's rigged and you would just put your head down and get through it. But no, he, he would keep trying to live up to those ideals which uh, is tragic and and also like very admirable too. He didn't compromise his values every time that he had an opportunity to be shown that the world was not a fair place. Like I say, I, I just love that character for actually standing up to all the ideals that I wish I had always stood up for myself. Yeah, but it is hard. 
it really illustrated that if you go that path, it is a very hard path. Just like Dr. Martin Luther King's path, it can end in tragedy. But sometimes you make that sacrifice. You stand up and you do the thing. And uh, I admire everyone who is able to do that and carry through. And it's because of them that the world does get better. I mean, these people do impact the world and improve it. Uh, it's just, it's a terrible price to pay sometimes. Well, we could probably talk about this book like all day, <laughs> but we should probably move on to another section. But before we do, does anyone have final closing comments about it? I mean, I think we all really liked it. It's such a small book, but it has so much impact. There's so much there. Yeah, I like this book on every level, from the writing to the characterization to the story to the just the beautiful use of language. There's so much to love in this book, uh, even though, you know, the subject matter is a little hard, but it's real. And uh, I can't couldn't can't find the slightest fault with this book. It's great. Now, now that you've read two of his books, do you think you will seek out other ones by him now? Yeah, you know I admire good writing a lot. Like, and I like people who can condense things into a nice compact form, not like waste a lot of time with irrelevant things. And Colson Whitehead is efficient and effective and beautiful in the way he writes. Yeah, I would definitely, I've gone on and read a few more books by Colson Whitehead, and I plan on reading every word that he writes, he has written, that he will write, that he might write someday. <laughs> um, I, I can't say I enjoyed this book so much, but this book brought so much to me, and I got so much out of it, and it's led me to so many new discoveries and ways of thinking, and just, as Dennis said, just admiration for that use of language, to be able to have such impact with those words, like with the perfect words and phrases and the scenes that are still staying with me and giving me chills even now. From that, we will transition to our cleverly worded segment, Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? Who's got something good? I've got something good. Yeah. Um, so I've got a book that, like the Nickel Boys, is contemporary. It's American. Uh, it's by a black author, and it deals with racism. And that is The Office of Historical Corrections by Daniel Evans. It was published in 2020. It is a short story collection and a novella. Unlike The Nickel Boys, which is male protagonists, the protagonists in this collection are, I believe, all female. It's been a while since I read it. So The Office of Historical Corrections is, like I said, a collection of stories. They're all set in present-day America, um, and they really all deal in both subtle and not so subtle ways with racism, but they don't hammer you over the head. They're not didactic while they deal with these really important themes. They have really strong narratives. They have well-developed characters. I was recently thinking about the best books I read last year, and this was among them. I think it's really underrated. It's it's so, so, so good. So that's the Office of Historical Corrections. There were a couple of different ways I could have gone with my book recommendation this time, but I think the one I settled on was this one. It's a nonfiction book called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Now, Michelle Alexander was a civil rights lawyer, and this book originally came out in the early 2010s. So it was written before Obama became president, but it came out, I think, the year after or the couple of years after and this edition that I have is the 10th anniversary edition. So the foreword to this book uh, is written in the Trump era. So it covers a bunch of different periods. But basically, the idea of this book, The New Jim Crow, her thesis is that the Jim Crow era of segregation in the States never really went away. 
that starting in 82 with uh, Reagan's war on drugs, that was actually a pushback against the civil rights movement. And the situation in the states now of mass incarceration really is a de facto Jim Crow situation where blacks and people of color are uh, systematically discriminated against. And uh, even it's the interesting thing is like even like talks about for um, employment that requires a criminal records check or, or, or something like that doesn't necessarily say we aren't going to hire you. But when you look at the percentage of black and people of color in prison, it, it works out to be a discriminatory thing. And, and so anyway, anyone that wants to sort of have a more up to date sense of uh, race and ethnicity studies in the States, I would recommend The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. I see that one referenced all the time. Mm, yeah. yeah. I went a little bit older, so old school with the one, uh, the, my selection for this one. I would recommend uh, The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, mm. which was actually published in 1952 when the Real Dozier School was active, when all of these laws and all of the things that Elwood lived through were happening. And I believe that this book really paved the way for authors like Colson Whitehead. The storyline is uh, that there is a black man who is nameless in the story. He is struggling to survive and in a society that doesn't see him as a human being. They see him simply as, as the color of his skin. It's a very different approach in some regards to Colson Whitehead, where there's a lot of really lush description. There's a lot of words being used to bring this to light, and it's not linear. It's told in a series of flashbacks and dreams. And it's a, it's a much heavier book, I will say, literally, physically. And it's a challenge to read. But I really feel as though this book is something that was written and published at a time when none of this was thought of, when the racist systems were in place and very firmly in place. And it's definitely worth a read. I found that reading, going back, I read it first in university, and then I went back and reread parts of it after reading The Nickel Boys. And I found that one really illuminated the other. So I would recommend The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Excellent. We'd mentioned before the, you know, reading The Nickel Boys, it's hard not to immediately recognize the parallels of the reform schools to the Canadian residential school systems. Particularly, the discovery of the unmarked graves at the Nickel Academy mirrors the confirmation of the existence of unmarked graves here in numerous residential schools in Canada. So my book recommendation is one that's been on my personal reading list for a little while, but I have not yet tackled, and that is Honoring the Truth, Reconciling for the Future, the Summary of the Final Report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. This report was produced by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, which was established in 2008 to document the history and continuing impacts of residential school systems. They interviewed around 7,000 residential school survivors, reviewed records and reports, and in June 2015 released their summary report and 94 calls to action. The final report, which starts with Honoring the Truth, Reconciling the Future, was released in December 2015. Uh, it's a multi-volume uh, report. It's fairly large. I was reminded of this report this past year while having a conversation with a family member who thought that we as a country had already implemented all of the TRC calls to action, and we as a country were really past all of that stuff now. Uh, so even though we hear about residential schools more than ever, uh, more than we used to, and most of us are kind of aware that they were bad, I don't feel that we, and by we I mostly mean non-Indigenous individuals in this country, and I include myself unreservedly in that, I don't think we always really get how bad it was and what happened. So this is on my reading list, and I recommend it to everybody else to uh, the TRC report. It's available for free online. We have copies of the book in the library. You can get it here. 
I don't expect it to be an easy read, but I think it's a worthwhile read. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein our panelists try to bring out the magic of words by discussing a word or phrase that has been on our minds recently. My word comes directly from my book recommendation and it's also indirectly from Nickel Boys, and it's the term Jim Crow. Uh, we all have heard this term. We all know it somehow has to do with segregation in the southern states. But where did the actual term come from? Who was Jim Crow? Why were the laws around segregation called that? So did a little reading. And uh, Jim Crow thought to could be dated back to 1830 as a character that was done by a white actor in blackface as part of one of the early examples of the minstrel show that used all of the negative stereotypes of the time and uh, became quite a, a sort of a famous caricature of, of a black man. So that's where the term began. And then there was a very interesting court case in New Orleans that tried to challenge Jim Crow, but the case failed. It had to do with someone riding on a, on a railway. And, and in fact, what happened was then the Supreme Court of the United States actually passed a judgment that made the Jim Crow laws constitutional in the states after that. So I thought that was quite interesting. And since Elwood was arrested in a car, and we talked about how traffic stops tend to be a common flashpoint for these kinds of confrontations, some of the Jim Crow traffic laws or etiquette were just blew my mind. So for example, at intersections, blacks did not have the right of way. They had to stop if a person, a white person driving a car was going to a four-way stop. If there was an automobile accident, it was given that the black driver was at fault, no matter what the situation was. And black drivers could be fined if they passed cars driven by whites. These are just three examples of uh, some of the Jim Crow laws and, and customs that uh, you know, according to Michelle Alexander, have never really gone away. So Jim Crow. I can follow that. My word is does not relate to this book at all, but it is also a name. So that's a good segue. Um, so this is something I'm not. And uh, uh, my word is Pollyanna, uh, <laughs> which is an excessively cheerful or optimistic person, which I heard recently. And I thought, oh, that's that's a strange word. Let me look that up. So Pollyanna was the name of the heroine in a book called Pollyanna by Eleanor H. Porter. It was published in 1913. It's actually considered a classic of children's literature. It's about an orphan who goes to live with her wealthy and stern aunt. Um, and her philosophy of life centers on something called the glad game, which consists of finding something to be glad about in every situation. This book has actually been turned into several movies. You can visit a Pollyanna statue in uh, Eleanor Porter's hometown of Littleton, New Hampshire, where they actually have an annual Glad Day every summer. <laughs> um, you can go to the website of Littleton and see pictures from, from past Glad Days. This book is not in our catalog. Unfortunately, maybe. I don't know. But you can read it on Project Gutenberg if you're, if you're interested in Pollyanna. So there you go. I remember watching a movie of that as a child. Oh, really? Which yes. one? The Disney one? I don't recall which version it is, but uh, I just, when I was in elementary school, Pollyanna was a, a term like we, you know, oh, you're such a Pollyanna. It's, uh... <laughs> I also like, Toby, that in your nerd word, you sneakily put another book recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't, I, I don't know. I don't think anyone should read this. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't sound particularly great, but uh, if you're interested. You should not watch the movie either. I saw it in elementary school as well, and we was during a movie day, so we watched the first half of the film in a gym 
And at one point, spoiler alert, Pollyanna falls off a roof and winds up paralyzed. And I was so upset. I walked home. I was sobbing my eyes out. My mother couldn't make out why I was so upset other than she thought somebody had school had fallen off of a roof. So she came back to the school with me afterwards to find out what had happened. Hmm. And I saw the rest of the movie and Pollyanna did find the glad in the situation somehow. But I still remember that movie and as being so horribly upset. So by she, what happened. Is she paralyzed for the rest yeah, of the what's, book? What's yeah, what's the glad? What? Yeah, that's that's all that I remember. I've never gone back and, and read it, uh, followed up on it in any way. I was about eight, I think. It's about third grade. Wow. Sounds like, that's like the David Lynch version of uh, <laughs> Pollyanna they, they, they showed yeah. you. Wow. No, Pollyanna was committed to the glad thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No matter what. Yep. Wow. Yep. That was a terrifying thing. <laughs> I'm sorry to have brought back such a traumatic memory. <laughs> I'll get over it. I'll get through it. So uh, my nerd word was actually a phrase that kind of ran through my head uh, while I was reading this book, and it was to turn a blind eye, which is to ignore, it's been defined as to ignore undesirable or unwanted information. And that, of course, is what happened in so many cases here, that people ignored what was happening at the school or turned a blind eye to the events there. And uh, when I did a little bit of digging on it, uh, apparently the phrase is said to have originated with Admiral Horatio Nelson, who was a hero of the British Navy. And uh, poor old Horatio had been blinded in one eye early on in his naval career. During a battle in 1801, a subordinate came to him, there was a battle, a sea battle, uh, came to him and said signal flags had been posted indicating that Nelson should retreat. And Nelson did not agree with that. He felt that he could win the battle. So uh, in order to give himself, I guess, some plausible deniability, he put a spyglass to his blind eye and said that he could not see the message. (laughs) (laughs) So that was where the phrase apparently to turn a blind eye. Nelson literally turned a blind eye to his commander and ended up winning the battle. (laughs) So maybe sometimes it's a good thing to obey orders. I'm not endorsing that (laughs) in any way. But uh, yeah, that's uh, to turn a blind eye. Nice. For my nerd word, it's based on the phrase, which you've likely heard, to pull the rug out from under someone's feet. So this is defined usually to mean uh, to suddenly stop providing support or assistance to someone, usually leaving them in a bad position. The phrase originates in apparently 1936, according to Etymology Online, and is based on an earlier expression, to cut the grass under one's feet, which dates back to the 1580s. So I came across an interesting usage of this phrase recently. I was reading a discussion online about a recent cryptocurrency scam, of which there are many. A common one involves people taking donations for a project, whether it be charity, developing a new product, etc., and then just taking the money and running. Due to the nature of cryptocurrency, the victims are generally completely out of luck. This maneuver is frequently described as a rug pull. In my mind, I picture a cartoon image of a curly-mustached villain yanking a carpet out from under a hapless victim, then quickly grabbing all the virtual dollar signs that spin around the victim's head as they lay there, confused. (laughs) It would be adorable if it wasn't for the real financial and environmental harms caused by the crypto economy. But if you're interested in cryptocurrency scams, and why wouldn't you be, I'll drop a link to the website. Web3 is going just great in the show notes. They have regular stories about the latest personal finance destroying shenanigans around Bitcoin, Ethereum, NFTs, and more, many of which are classic rug pulls. Hmm. I'm so confused about NFTs. I've tried to understand them, and it's just... Here's my quick uh, version of it. An NFT, non-fungible token, is a cryptographically signed digital thing. So it's kind of like... If someone made a piece of artwork and you had a print, and on the print there was a serial number and a signature, 
to show that you had a particular copy of a print. That's all an NFT is, except it's digital and it's literally worthless, but people are paying a ton of money for them anyway. <laughs> if, if you're a crypto fan and you want to get in touch, our email address is on the website. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you for joining us, dear readers. Next month, we'll bring us to our 50th episode, which is a landmark we'd like to celebrate. So instead of our usual practice of talking about one book, we're going to talk about as many books as we can. So you don't have to read any particular book before this episode, dear reader. Just tune in for a conversation about books we like, love, or couldn't stand. We'll also be dropping in some extra nerd words. And if that isn't enough, we're bringing back certain voices you might remember from past episodes. It's going to be a book club podcast love fest, and we hope you'll join us. If you're going to be listening anyways, maybe you could tell us about some of the books you like, love, or can't stand. Point your words in our direction, and maybe we can include them during the episode. We'd love that. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes and discussion questions there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service, and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find... Time to Read! about the oft um, Toby's going to tell us about the author after which Trevor can't talk this report was produced sorry I bumped my mic I forget what I was saying now uh, talking about Elwood you're just going on and on about Elwood just rambling <laughs> see our, our fate is really in Dennis's hands at this mm-hmm. point because he decides yeah. what goes into the final episode and what doesn't so yeah uh, I can cut it so everyone sounds really dumb except me yeah. <laughs> You're my favorite panel member, yeah. Dennis. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs>